Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of the Marlboro Free Libraries podcast, the story of Marlboro, the past, present, and the future. My name is Lindsay, and I'm the adult services librarian at the Marlboro Free Library. Just some background for those tuning in for the first time. This project is funded by a Libraries Transforming Communities grant awarded to the library by the American Library Association. One of our goals in receiving this grant is to highlight and work together with local businesses in our community. Through community conversations with local business owners in Marlboro, which was part of this grant project, we realized that one way we could support our local business owners is by highlighting their stories through a podcast and as a new tour on our Discover Marlboro app. Our podcast features the individual stories of business owners in Marlboro who participated in this grant project and their insights on how the library can partner with its local business community. Tune in each week to listen as we interview a different business owner around town to hear the story of their business, why they got started, why did they choose Marlboro, their thoughts on collaborations with their local libraries, and to learn more about our small town. For more information on our Discover Marlboro app, visit marlborolibrary.org. We hope you enjoy these interviews. Today we have with us Richie Rosenkranz, who is the site director of the Gomez Millhouse, located right on the border of Marlboro and Newburgh. The Gomez Millhouse has such a rich history that I'm really excited to interview you today, Richie, and to learn more about the site. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to learn about it. Um, or rather to talk about it. Um, I'm actually excited to learn about it too. I should stay with that because I, even as the site director, I don't know everything about the place. Nobody does. And we're constantly unearthing new bits or combining different parts of the narrative to have a better understanding of what happened here and the people who lived here. So I am excited to learn about it um, as we talk about it and as we grow um, beyond just this interview and as we work with our neighbors and you know, form a closer relationship with the Marlboro community. So I'm really excited. It seems like the Gomez Millhouse has so much history that everything that you find about Marlboro somehow ties back to this property. <laughs> That's funny, yeah. We're kind of like a little uh, nexus or, or matrix or hub or whatever of um, Marlboro, Newburgh, Hudson Valley history. And it's hyper-local, you know. Um, we have you know, a small amount of acreage now, but historically there were thousands of acres owned by the people who lived here and they were involved in the agricultural <clears throat> commercial works that, you know, forever and now even um, are the backbone of the Marlboro community and economy. So yeah. for those who are new to the area or are not from here. Can you tell us a little bit about the Gomez Millhouse and the history of it and your role at the Gomez Millhouse? Sure, yeah. It's tough to, to tell a little bit about it because there's, like you just said, there's so much to it. But basically, uh, 300 or so years ago, the land was patented uh, to English citizens in 1714 with a lot of other land around here. And a couple of years later, a denizen, not a citizen, excuse me, <clears throat> of the um, English uh, system named Louis Moses Gomez bought the land from a citizen. The citizens who owned the patents around here were generally big shots, if you will, from Newburgh, like 
uh, or not Newburgh, uh, New York City. Um, the Minister of Import Duties, the Sheriff of Manhattan, the Chief Magistrate. And so they acquired patents as something akin to land speculation. They weren't really going to come and live up here. There was nothing up here. <clears throat> but they knew they would develop the uh, natural resources as part of the colonial system. And then rather than go about doing that themselves, they were more than happy to sell it to, say, a Spanish Jewish merchant who had recently settled in New York City and established his base of operations there, his uh, Atlantic trade, you know, mercantile business, which probably included several ships of their own, while it's chartering other ships owned by other companies to move goods um, back and forth between Europe, Africa, the Caribbean, and um, New York City. And so Louis Moses Gomez was a denizen. Uh, he couldn't be a citizen because you had to pledge allegiance to the Church of England back then okay. to be a citizen. And from, from my interpretation of the history, that was kind of an, uh, it was a way for the Protestants to keep the Catholics out of power after probably Queen Elizabeth I and then Cromwell and all that. And uh, the Catholics had banned the Jews. I think the Catholics had banned the Jews from, from England. And I think Cromwell lifted that ban and said, look, you know, it's, it's really silly. Uh, it's bad for business, bad for the empire to, you know, ban an international network of merchants from working here and being part of our, our you know, imperial industrial operations. But they couldn't be a citizen because they weren't going to become Protestants. The Protestants were like, yeah, you don't have to convert. Um, you just can't be a citizen. You can be a slightly lower rank and you can buy land from a citizen and, and work that land and make it profitable to the crown. And you get to keep your cut. We keep ours and everything works out. So Gomez acquires a couple of thousand acres of land. We're able to prove without a question of a doubt, 3,000. There have been claims to more than that, but I think those claims were based on adding up the total patent acreage. He only okay. owned parts of each of those patents. Um, and then other, other subdivisions on those patents occurred and other people owned them becoming his neighbors, if you will. And so the Gomez boys got to work. Uh, well, they didn't probably work here. Their, their, um, their workers worked here. Um, got to work harvesting natural resources from those acres. And mainly their gig was lime and lumber. Okay. Because those were two of the most easily accessible natural resources and two of the most uh, in-demand resources for building um, both in Manhattan and for shipping out of Manhattan other places. So they were cutting down trees and quarrying limestone. Um, the area that's below, it's below on the hill, but also it's uh, eastward toward the river of um, Old Post Road. Once you get past the few private houses that are along Quarry Road and um, forget the name of the road, the other road that's down there. At any rate, all that land is most Mar Marlboro residents know is owned by Tilcon now. They were going to quarry all that. But on that land are old 
lime kilns. Oh, wow. That go way back. <clears throat> they're probably not as old as 300 years. They're probably newer. Okay. Uh, they're more industrial in their scope, but but the Gomez's had lime kilns, maybe right along the river. You would have been able to see those kilns from a sailboat, perhaps. And the and sailboats course, used to be able to come up the river, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. And the docks for a lot of this were right on the river. I think it was easier for them to access rather than trying to get over to what used to be the um, like the Marlboro um, Wharf or the Marlboro Bay. Okay. <clears throat> that is the confluence of the two branches of the Latin Town Creek, you know, Old Man's Kill right through town. And then this thing here, which has been called various names, uh, most particular this part of the Gomez Millhouse story, Jews Creek. It's kind of commonly known as that still in some circles. Um, Mill Creek is, I think, the more um, popular name for it in commercial use, okay. for example, the Mill Creek Golf Course. <clears throat> um, but its official designation is the, the Latin Town Creek South Branch. Oh, I didn't and, know that. Yeah, and Old Man's Kill is the Latin Town Creek North Branch because creeks generally get named for or from the, their mouths. And so those two things come together down there and they, a long time ago, created the little Marlboro Wharf or Bay where a lot of the docks were. When the trains came through and they built that berm to run the tracks on and closed off the, the area from sailing ships getting in there, all that um, inlet water dried out and it's now like a wetlands. Gomez may have used that. Um, the later owners may have used it. Okay. But we have records indicating that the, uh, the docks for this area <clears throat> we're right on the river because I think it was just closer and a little more easily accessible for them rather than getting all the way down to the mouth of the creek. They could just cut over to the river sure. from like Old Post Road. So it started out as a commercial, semi-industrial operation. We don't have any indications of any real farming going on during that time. And then in the 1770s, the property is purchased by the next significant owner, Wolvert Ecker. And uh, it had been about 25 years since the Gomez's had left. They kind of packed up in the late 1740s. And then 1772, Wolvert Ecker buys what was left over from the um, Gomez usage. And he adds structures, builds onto what the Gomez building was. That's the stone portion of the house. Okay. Um, there was something there. It was definitely a stone structure, not what we see now. Ecker expanded upon whatever the Gomez's had in order to create uh, the sort of lower level of the brick structure that he built. So then it becomes a real residence and a homestead and a dwelling for the rest of the history from 1772 up until I think in the 90s is when when Mildred Starin left, um, gave up her residency here. And Wolverdecker was a local civic leader. He was 
the supervisor of the town of Newburgh for most of the latter half of the 1770s, 75, not 76, weirdly, but then 77, 78, 79, I think 80. And quickly after that time period became uh, a justice of the peace in Marlboro. So he was, you know, a significant um, government and uh, civic leader. Reportedly, he's the, one of the first people, if not the first person to be elected in Orange County. And that's probably just, you know, um, as the, um, the local rebellion leaders move into becoming official government leaders under this, uh, you know, provincial U.S. government that was being formed, um, you get elected, you swear in and um, commence your operations. <clears throat> Prior to those elections, Wolvert was part of the Newburgh and Marlboro groups that were largely responsible for taking power from the colonial administrators by way of groups called uh, the Committees for Safety and Observation. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I call them COSOs or COSOs, but um, the Committees of Safety and Observation were actually a throwback to the Cromwell period um, when he was sort and he and his guys were kind of wresting power um, from the um, the monarchical government of England. And so that's these guys sort of adopted that moniker and the idea of keeping an eye on your neighbors, keeping an eye on loyalists, keeping lists of who's with who and who's gonna support whom when the fighting happens, <clears throat> who is going to, um, since it was all farms back then, who would supply the militia people with, um, you know, with uh, stores and wares and goods and things to get them through if they're going to be engaging, who's going to supply the army of the rebels and all, all sorts of stuff. And then, you know, who may, you know, want to interfere with that as well. So those committees end up transitioning into becoming the sort of first U.S. local governments, like the first town board of Marlboro and Newburgh and all that. The Armstrong family was the third remarkable long-term family here. So the Gomez's were here for like 30 years. The Eckers were here for like 40, 25, 20, 50 years. The Armstrong family, they came originally from Scotland to New York City and then up here. And they were here for two generations. They were here from, they were in the Marlboro Newburgh area from the 1820s until kind of the 1920s really. So about a hundred years. <clears throat> and they have ownership of the Gomez Mill House and the dance camera land for I think about 70 of those years. Wow. Yeah, they're our longest um, term owning family. And they were <clears throat> overall what you would call gentlemen farmers. So they were wealthy landowners who were involved in agriculture and they would have you know, crews of, um, of workers on their land. And they would engage in various more white collar work as well as their farming. 
for example, they were diplomats, lawyers, and uh, well-respected artists, one of whom helped create the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Oh, cool. Wow. Yeah, not an insubstantial museum. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> it's weird to think that there was a time, <clears throat> a long time, actually, when um, these institutions that we just sort of, I wouldn't say take for granted, but, you know, it's just like, you know, they're there, right? And they're kind of just part of our fabric, um, that they didn't exist. And somebody had to say, we should have one of those. We should have, so, you know, in the late 1860s, there was enough American art being made, as well as enough understanding of Native art and art throughout the world that um, wealthy collectors wanted to display in America rather than having to go to Europe to see it, that, um, that people started to agitate about having a substantial museum in New York City dedicated to American arts and the idea of <clears throat> America being um, the melting pot or the salad bowl or whatever euphemisms we, we learn for other art from around the world. And so the Metropolitan Museum of Art um, became obviously, as a lot of people know, became that they have an amazing collection of art from all over the world. And um, yeah, a boy raised down at the dance camera uh, estate, which is now a, mostly a, a power plant site, um, helped create that institution. It's always amazing to hear of somebody from Marlboro playing a role in creating these iconic places. It's just, it's- Oh yeah. It's so uh, amazing. Yeah, we have to remember that we're not that far from, you know, the, um, cosmopolitan center of arguably the Western world. <laughs> so there's going to be people coming up on the train who are going to, they're going to settle in Marlboro and the town of Newburgh and Milton and whatever, and they're going to do pretty significant um, actions. <clears throat> the next guy, for example, um, to touch base on arts, um, the Armstrong fellow, by the way, has he was a well-known stained glass artist, and so he has stained glass in various buildings, churches. Um, I think his stained glass is in the New York State Court of Appeals. Okay. He was a very accomplished stained glass artist, as was his daughter. And, you know, they knew like Louis Comfort Tiffany and John Lafarge and a whole host of the really important New York City area artists that were working in stained glass and painting and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, eventually, hopefully the, all the residents of Marlboro who are listening to me drone on here will eventually be able to come to the site and, and learn more as well. So speaking of art, the next owner is a guy named Dard Hunter and he comes here and his art form is bookmaking, papermaking. And he's the gentleman who built the mill that's there now. Okay. <clears throat> that is a papermaking mill there's a machine in there that is used to basically grind up pulp which would be plant material linen rag and whatever else you wanted to throw in there um, to make paper obviously not wood you'd have to get the wood down into a, a different consistency he didn't like using wood because of the problems that it has during the entire process he essentially just took linen rags uh, and ground them up 
into a slurry of um, water and cotton, and then you put that in a vat and kind of scoop it out uh, um, with a, a big wire screen so that the paper pulp material sticks onto the screen and the water drains through the screen and then you have your piece of paper. <clears throat> and within the, within the screen work, you can make designs for what are called watermarks. Okay. When I was a kid and, you know, you know, financial documents and, you know, high grade stationery would have a watermark, you know, when you're a kid, you don't, you know, how, how does it, how is it a watermark? Why is it a watermark? Nowadays, that's kind of a, the, the technology is a little different in some of this stuff. They don't necessarily use water in the process. They can have like laser engravings on the, on the plates and stuff, but essentially, you know, for whatever, you know, 90% of paper making history, the process was a wet process. So okay. watermarks have that name. And he was a really well-known watermark artist. We have some of his work featured here um, in the library. But the main thing that Dart Hunter did was he made books by hand from scratch alone. Um, and they may be the world's first books made by a single person alone. They're certainly a, um, the first books made by a single person um, you know, from scratch in American history, because you have this agricultural community that existed here. A lot, not a lot of reading occurred. <clears throat> and then the more upper echelons of society read, but a lot of paper and books were um, not produced in America. They were produced in Europe and shipped here. Okay. And then once papermaking starts to become a thing here, it doesn't really have the sort of breadth and length of scope to go really deeply into the artisan, craftsman, artistry side of things. You have cottage industry stuff that is a little more practical and pragmatic. Obviously, there is some artistry to it. I'm not knocking it and saying that there wasn't. But then you have the industrial revolution that kind of comes in. And so you don't have this like development and trajectory of the artisan stuff that you have in Asia and Europe. <clears throat> so in the very early 1900s, Dard goes to Europe and he sees this artistry in bookmaking and papermaking and he's blown away by it. He had been a designer and learned how to be one. And he was kind of, he didn't fall in love with any specific aspect of or, or genre of design right you know he's like i'm a designer i don't know what i want to design to sort of put it bluntly and then he discovers what he wants to design he wants to make books he wants to learn about the history of books the history of paper making because it has a very substantial history it goes back you know thousands of years to basically china and um how it expands from there. He, and he went all over the world. He's got books like Paper Making on the Island of Tonga, where he went to Tonga and learned about the history of paper making there in Siam and in China. And he becomes a world leading expert wow. <clears throat> on the history of paper making and on the processes of paper making. So much so that MIT gives him a position to do just that there, to be a like a, a kind of like laboratory 
cultivating professor kind of adjunct or you know some sort of version of that uh, working with paper making technology at MIT in the 1940s. That's unbelievable. I had no yeah. idea all about that about yeah. Dard Hunter. Who had the property after Dard Hunter then? After Dard, uh, it goes to a gal named Martha Greening and she's, um, I'm gonna be a little biased for a moment. She's my favorite owner. Um, she was uh, a member of the NAACP uh, and before that, very active in women's suffrage. And she buys the house to attempt to turn it into a school, um, a, a libertarian international school. Um, and by libertarian, we don't mean the, the sort of 1950s on political definition of the word. It's um, more about the libertarian model of education, which essentially is it's more child-centered, more in tune with the, the children <clears throat> working out, um, you know, new methods of instruction rather than the, you know, old established bureaucratic methods, right? Okay. Public education is always developing, always changing, always bringing in new methods and um, the libertarian model was something that I think arose in the early 1900s. Um, and then um, people like Martha studied it and tried to make it happen here. <clears throat> Unfortunately, we don't have any record of the school ever existing. We don't think it was a success. Okay. We don't think the school opened. There are advertisements for it in 1919. Uh, we have to find out if there were any takers or not. We don't. We don't think it it worked out, and it was abandoned just a couple of years later. It's interesting because the advertisement is put forth in NAACP publications as um, a school for colored children and others. They would have accepted white children as well. It was just that it was to not be segregated. Okay. Um, I think public schools in New York were integrated <clears throat> by policy and you know sort of officially and, and whatnot but society wasn't integrated so uh, and you didn't have busing obviously so you had mostly into you had mostly um community schools neighborhood schools so even though the policy was to was that you know education is integrated um if you don't have integrated neighborhoods you have segregated schools you have segregated community you have segregated schools so this idea of sort of getting Hudson Valley children, potentially um, African-American children from the New York City area to come live in a rural community, <clears throat> in a rural home with a little bit of acreage attached, it was probably about 30 acres at that point, and engage in this you know, um, new model of education is an interesting thing to, explore um, as as an educational institution of sorts as we are now. So we, we look forward to doing more of that. Again, <clears throat> not a great ton of information okay. on it. Not, you know, who thinks they're going to be in a history book? 
Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, you know, information that is maybe important at the time isn't kept for posterity or years later, somebody comes across something, doesn't know what it is or understand what it should be and gets rid of it. Someone's personal effects when they pass are not kept for whatever reasons on and on and on. But we're going to keep pressing and keep getting as much information on all these owners. And um, it was run as a, as a bed and breakfast after Martha. She was here until the mid-20s. And um, the whole thing kind of centered around her adopted African-American child. She was in the city doing NAACP work and um, uh, a, a, a Black family that had moved to New York from North Carolina had a couple of children and the youngest of them was adopted by Martha and taken on a kind of whirlwind adventure, if you will, into education and <clears throat> living. And we wanna delve a little bit more into that because it's an interesting dynamic that of course has, um, you know, connections to, um, to modern society, modern adoption, um, modern interracial adoption. And Martha was doing work with the NAACP as an investigative journalist. And uh, that obviously connects very strongly to, uh, to a lot of what has happened, not just in the last year or so, uh, and not of course, just with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement that comes out of uh, the killings in, I think, 2013, 2014, um, Trayvon Martin, uh, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, um, that, that era um, that gives rise to that. But, you know, a lot of, you know, activism through the 60s, right, in the 70s and 80s and 90s. <clears throat> and so we have a lot of interesting material to help paint the broader spectrum so that we can hopefully what the Gomez Millhouse wants to do, what our foundation and our trustees and myself want to do is be relevant to the conversation that moves all of those social topics and social actions forward. We would love to help be involved in whatever processes eventually lead to government policy changes <clears throat> by you know, using our resources and tools that we have to have um, discussions, conversations, inform information being learned and people gathering um you know with the with the house is sort of this background and you know core point that allows a lot of great thinking and doing to um to happen because arguably um there's a well it's not arguable there's a lot of work that still needs to be done <laughs> in in improving the quality of life for a lot of people in getting equity and justice and equality um, at higher levels. And the Gomez Foundation wants to play a role in that. We want to, you know, we don't want to just sit here and sort of hit people over the head with our ancestor is important or, you know, our Civil War era owner was important. You should come and learn about them. We want to make them important to 
uh, to people's lives moving forward. We want to have an impact on children and young adults and everybody else. Mildred Starin is the gal who at the end of all those amazing historical owners, she and her husband, <clears throat> Jeffrey, they buy the house in 1948 and basically take, take care of it until 1984, officially when the Gomez Foundation takes over, but Millie stays on for at least another 10 years after that. And so they are definitely part of our story because they live in the house for close to 50 years and you know keep it you know as is as was um without a lot of substantial modifications to it obviously they needed to put in modern plumbing and electric and stuff like that but um and then when it comes time for them to take those next steps Millie gets the house on the national register of historic places does enough research for that and enough research to prompt interest from people who then want to move beyond just designating it as a historic place, but turn it into a museum. Her, her dream, if you will, her vision <clears throat> was to take the information that she had discovered and make it accessible, make the site accessible to the community, to the public. So she found some Gomez family members, some descendants of Louis Moses Gomez, who thought that was a really good idea. And then they found some descendants of the other families and they, okay. formed, yep, they created a foundation, formed a board and, and moved forward with that. So to, to bring back to, to present day now, because um, we just yeah. talked about that a little bit, what are some normal events that you guys do have at the Gomez Mill House that people can look forward oh. to each year or not not just events that are in the, in the making, but events that you've held in the past that the community can come to kind of rely on? Oh, sure, yeah. Well, uh, <clears throat> we had a mitzvah day every year where the Jewish community would come and help us with our spring cleaning. We're going to start that up, I'm assuming, in 2022 again. Okay. That's usually the week after or the week before Mother's Day. Uh, that's an old faithful, if you will. We've been doing that for probably 20 years now. Okay. <clears throat> so people will come and wash the windows, help us clean, you know, get all, you know, sort of get the winter dust off things, plant uh, flowers in the various flower beds and spruce the place up for, for opening. Uh, that's a lot of fun. Then we have our programming, which is usually summer programming and usually in person, where we would have a presentation on a topic related to one of our owner's contributions. So we try to do like a Dart Hunter related presentation and a Wolverdecker related presentation, right? We, essentially five a year, <clears throat> one focused on each owner and then a couple where they're more general. And, um, and then we're, uh, the pandemic was obviously unfortunate for a great many people and museums had to shift into virtual programming. And we did one virtual program, which was successful. And we'd like to now move into the hybrid model. Okay. Uh, so we will, you know, re, I guess, you know, we will commence again with our programming and hopefully uh, work out the, well, not hopefully, we're going to work out the logistics 
of making um, the programs accessible um, to uh, anybody who can't or won't, you know, feel safe for a little while coming here. But you know, Marlboroans are always welcome. Uh, but if they don't want to come or they can't come, you know, at, at the time the um, the program is run, say historically we do, you know, Sunday at Millhouse, and our program is at one p.m. They can tune in some uh, Sunday night or Monday morning or Monday night or whatever, <clears throat> and watch the uh, watch the uh, the program from home. And um, I, I kind of wish we had started that before COVID. It's a it's a really great idea, but uh, but we didn't. And but we're gonna now. And so it is. Our, I think uh, a yeah, lot of I, people are are thinking that too. Like, oh, it's just, why why did we never think about that? Before? I know. I really did one of the sort of like. <laughs> You know, face palmy kind of like, why didn't I think of that? It's because you don't. You just you take for granted that you're going to be able to be open to the public and that people are going to come here and and you don't think about reaching those wider audiences maybe for whatever reasons that you're not. A lot of museums do very well with their visitation, so they don't sort of have to think about <coughs> how to reach audiences that aren't going to come there. And you know, as a, a sort of physical site-based operation where you're you bring people in and show them things in the building and talk to them about it, you don't think about um connecting with someone in Ohio. Right, right, yeah. Right. And then all right. of a sudden you have to. Right. And then you see that people are interested from afar and right. And then you yeah. realize, good gosh, we could reach people in Ohio. So if Somebody in the community wanted to volunteer at the site. Are you taking volunteers? How how would they go about? Yes, right now we're closed to the public, so volunteering now would probably be a little on the administrative side. But if we we if we plan to open, well, we plan to open on on Labor Day weekend. We'll see how that goes. I I think the most interesting thing to do as a volunteer here is to give the tours. Okay. And because that, that because that's interactive. You learn the information and then you, you know, transmit that information to to visitors. I could always use help with a little bit of administrative work, with some um, gardening, you know, related issues, grounds upkeep. It's hard to weed. A lot of this area. <laughs> we're in a little bowl that, you know, we're directly surrounded by the woods. So we have invasive species encroachment and, you know, the stream banks need attention, the stone walls, you get stuff growing in them sometimes, you know, it's kind of silly to, and whatever to sort of put those details out there in certain ways, but, but it's important to really have a lot of attention to a lot of detail here and with you know just one or two people it's difficult to keep up with it i bet i bet yeah and we always love you know the the marlboro community or students coming by to want to pitch in and help out can you tell us a little bit about your own role at the gomez mill house like what sure. does your typical day look like oh yeah <clears throat> well, um, <laughs> a lot. I, I kind of wear a lot of different hats. As the site director, obviously, I'm in charge of daily operations here, which uh, includes 
uh, visitation, making sure that we have tour guides available when we are open, which we will be opening hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, around Labor Day this year. Okay. Training um, tour guides to make sure that they give a, a, a proper and uh, well-received guided tour. Monitoring all of the physical aspects of the buildings and grounds. Talking to the board of directors about you know everything that's going on so that they are in you know full awareness of everything that's happening um, down to some small details. I want to make sure that the board of trustees <clears throat> is very aware of all the intricacies that it takes to manage a historical property because there's a lot of intricacies and a lot of nuances, a lot of details that you need to get right every time. From the kind of soffits and gutters and whatnot to you know how you nail together a shutter if you need to rebuild one, um, you know, to what kinds of modern additions you can put into a building like this for climate control and then programming, making sure that we have substantial offerings to our community for people's minds. So um, talking about our historic owners <clears throat> in ways that are relatable, in ways that are enticing to people. We're working on developing that even further in the basic concept of these folks contributed to community. And so how do those contributions that are in some cases 250 years old, um, how do they relate to today? How are they relevant? How can they be connected to what's going on today and the trajectory of what is happening now for the next 25 years? How do, how do these guys um, perform as role models, as examples of perhaps in some cases what not to do? Um, how do they <clears throat> relate and fit into the context of, of our history? Um, civics and the study of government and the study of the state apparatus and community, even at a local government level, <clears throat> I think requires having a, um, a basis in history and understanding how policy works out, how people who have uh, contributed to various different uh, changes in the structural system have worked out what they did and there's, there's lessons there. So just to wrap up, do you right, have any yeah. special plans or projects for the property that you would like to talk about with us today? Uh, yes, everybody should keep in mind that we're coming up to what will be the 250th anniversary of the American War for Independence, the Revolutionary War. And so the entire Hudson Valley is going to be starting events probably 2025. Okay. And for the, I think the next seven or eight years after that. So I know it's a few years away, but you know, I guess whoever is listening to this right now may want to just jot down 250th. And then specifically for the Gomez Mill House, uh, we, we're, we're trying to be careful because we, we don't exactly know what's going to go on with the road. And, you know, a lot of people feel 
<clears throat> safe right now. Um, thankfully, if people feel safe and are safe with uh, with COVID, but that could change in a month. Despite, right, yeah, it's hard to plan, like, so too far ahead. Yeah, a variant could come out or something or a mutation. We have to be careful. Right, right. Um, so we're thinking about offering some other programs. I'll definitely reach out to the library to let you know. One of the possibilities is um, interviewing a guy named David Levine. And he wrote a really interesting book about the Hudson Valley. It's like 250 million years of history of the Hudson Valley. Um, he managed to pack in a lot in a, in a, you know, the book's not a billion pages long, but he puts an article that he wrote about the Gomez Millhouse for Hudson Valley Magazine in the book because of the history that I talked a lot about earlier in this interview, that we have this breadth of history here that is kind of like this weird 300 year microcosm. That's awesome. Yeah, and he's a great guy, sweet guy. And uh, we're probably gonna have one of our uh, board members who's a professor at SUNY New Paltz interview. Okay. And other than that, I, um, I guess we'll have to stay tuned. Sounds great. Yeah. Thank you so much for letting us interview you today. This was so interesting. Oh. I had no idea about my some pleasure. of the history of these of some of the owners that you talked about. My pleasure, my really pleasure. And you know, it's really an honor and a privilege to be able to be in this position to talk to people, uh, especially people from Marlboro about the amazing history that the Gomez Millhouse has to uh, offer and discuss. Um, it's really exciting, you know, to be able to talk to someone who's like, I had no idea. Wow, that's cool. Um, you know, that impacts people's lives, hopefully. And um, Anybody listening to this, maybe they'll want to learn more about the history of their home, their property, where they live, their neighbors. Harbor has a lot of history in it, and it's so great to learn more about it. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the story of Marlboro, the past, present, and the future. 